Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week is my favorite drummer, Ricky Mazzotta of Me Without You. We recorded this just before they left for tour, and I believe on the 14th, uh, which was yesterday, they wrapped it up. But that's only the first leg of the tour. They pick it back up in January on the 7th. You're not going to want to miss them. They're starting to uh, sort of wind down. They're one of the coolest bands that I think has come out of punk and hardcore, and they're very special, and they deserve all of the love that uh, that's headed their way. Um, but before we get to that interview, I want to remind you of the Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, you could actually hear a bonus episode with Ricky right now. Subscribers were able to submit questions to Ricky, and he so kindly answered them in a bonus episode. So... If that interests you, head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And if you subscribe for seven or 10 bucks, you can sub, you can uh, submit questions to upcoming guests and uh, kind of find out who's coming up next and before anybody else. It's uh, it's cool stuff. Um, also, I want to give a shout to our sponsors, Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER when you visit store.dscvrd.co. All right. I think uh, I think that's it. Let's listen to the wonderful Ricky Mazzotta. <laughs> Ricky, hi. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Oh man, I'm so good. I, I uh, I'm so excited that you were able to to swing this in such short notice. It means a lot to me. No, I'm stoked, and uh, it's interesting. You were one of the last people I recall seeing on the road. You were at our last touring show before the pandemic hit. Right, and what year was that at this point? Was that 2019? No, it was 2020. It was, it was like 2020. early February, I think, um, middle February, right before R- stuff got bad. Right. And what was, uh, I forget when that tour was wrapping up, was there any sign of this starting in the news yet? It was, yet? you would walk, you'd be in like, you know, like a flying J and the TV would be on and you would see it and you'd be like, Oh, that looks pretty bad in other countries. Right. Can it happen here? You know? Right. Um, and then I remember leaving that show. We flew home the next morning at like 6am and like, I want to say at the LAX, like 30% of the people were wearing masks. And that was the first tip off to me. Like, oh, people, this is a real thing. Oh, right. I So I went to a show the night before, like, they shut down shows, which was yeah. like, it was it was Local H and Soul Asylum. Oh, uh, crucial was, that you get there. Risk it all. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget, like, I went. So after the show, I'm driving home and I'm like, man, I'm hungry. But I don't want to, like, get Del Taco for, like, the fourth night in a row. So I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to go to the grocery store and get some, like, pasta or something, right? Yeah. So I'm in line, and I walk in, and it's, like, you know, 1130 at night, and there's, like, the rows, the lines of people with full carts. Straight and, apocalypse. And there's one guy I'll never forget, because in the moment, I'm like, this lunatic. But this guy is just yelling to everybody, being like, it's all changing. You guys be ready. The world's about to get so weird. And I'm just like, this guy needs to relax, man. Just buy, just buy your toilet paper. And I'm like, man, the guy was right. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. 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 It <laughs> happened very quick. So 
It's good to see you again. It feels like a full circle kind of moment. Getting oh, ready to go back out on tour this week. So yeah. So you leave on Friday? Is that what you said? Or you rehearse Friday? Friday. We rehearse Thursday, and then we re- uh, we leave Saturday. It's like the first show is an hour and a half away. So oh, I love that. Yeah, and then New York's the next day, and we can't drive into the city, so we're just gonna come home. So it's kind of like a cheat cheat tour. It feels like you're going away, but you're not. Yeah, for for listeners that are that uh, you know don't tour or or whatever, there's a, there's this fun thing where you can't drive uh, big vehicles into the city. So how does Me Without You deal with that? Because you obviously have your bus, and then you yeah. have the trailer. So like, how do you get your stuff into the city in those circumstances? We basically wait till the last minute. So if it's around here, we'll come home. It's a two hour drive. We sometimes have to like park the bus 10 miles away. We'll like do like a quick drop and dash. Yeah. And park it in New Jersey. It's rare, but you know, Jack. Yeah. Our driver. Yeah. Jack will just put on an orange vest and intermittently stand out front of it and act like it's like a thing. And he's he's had us parked for like eight hours in Manhattan before. Holy so, shit. Yeah, it's just if you have the will to just put on a hard hat and look official, people listen to you for some reason. It's, it's very weird. I feel like your band above any band probably has figured out every single hack with stuff like that. Because you've been such like legitimate road dogs for so long and making things work under your own rules and your own guidelines. It's it's incredible. Totally. I'm not always the one that's comfortable with it. I'm like, what we're doing is illegal, just so you guys know. Because uh, right. I was never a confrontational person, or I never wanted to be like called out on things. Sure. Like, the there's like sometimes the, uh, I'm going to bastardize the saying, it's like, uh, just do it and ask for forgiveness later. Right. Like, don't seek permission. Right. And, you know, that's kind of like a low-key thing that gets kicked around especially with the bus because like your hands are tied in certain situations totally yeah it's just way easier to do that and you've had this now i I mean i was present for when the last bus you had to wave goodbye to it and now you've had this newer one this is the same one that you the second one is the same one you've had now since then right yes yes this one's actually running very well it's bigger more spacious yeah a lot of love's gone into it and when things start to like fall apart on it we're extremely proactive. Every time we pick it up after it's sat for months, they do like a, a lot of maintenance to it. That's, I mean, that's the way to that's the way to go. Back back when uh, when we actually owned our own vans, you know, like early on. Oh, when those we were, days. Those days, yeah, totally. I, I'm so sad that they don't even make the E350 anymore. Oh, it's devastating. Iconic. It's devastating. Yeah. I I genuinely hate sprinters. I hate them. Yeah, you know. Um, and, uh, but like, yeah, that was the thing. It was like, you know, before every tour, like, sorry, I know it's going to be a quick hit in the pocket, but we gotta, we gotta make sure that this thing's got, you know, just Total. the works done to it before we head out. And, you know, I, I can say it now because we don't own them anymore, but like we never once broke down on tour ever yeah. throughout the years and years we had different vans, like never happened because we took like ultra care. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, operating a vehicle, running tired, having like a trailer or a bus, you're like a moving liability. Totally. So like so much just not can only happen to you guys, but other drivers and stuff that. Yeah. Um, the whole like it's not a matter of if just based on the amount of traveling we all do. Disasters happen, you know, so 
we're always yeah. very cautious. We've had strange, I'm sure you've seen stuff on the road driving late at night or like accidents or tires flying off of semis and crossing yeah. lanes. And yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah, it's ter- It's terrifying. I mean, uh, I know uh, though we don't abide by it and I think he's had to bend his rules now, but like our, our pal, our mutual pal, Pat Kinlan has had to say like, like he tells his band, like, I don't drive like, like though he's not the one driving. He's like, I refuse to do an all overnight drive. Like we need to stop and we'll get, just have to get up at five in the morning to drive. He was like, he's like, yeah. it's a, he's like, it is just risking your life so much, but you know, yeah, a labor of love and just exercising safety. We got pretty good at that where if it's like, it used to be like, you're waking somebody up at three in the morning to drive 200 miles. Our shifts were 200. Right. And when you're in the bus, like pulling some of the hills in Denver and all that, like it's going eight miles an hour. So your 200 miles could be like a 12 hour driving shift that you started at. It was all like principle idea. Like it just was like very idealistic. We're going to do this rigidly to discipline ourselves. And we've gotten away from that for safety's sake with families back home and stuff. So it's a hundred oh. miles, hundred miles. You still get woken up. Right. But yeah, hundred miles. It, you can be done in three hours. Yeah. It's uh, the, the set, like I'm always night drive guy just cause I, tr- I have trouble sleeping. I'm a sober guy. Like all of those things have always fell into place where it's like, well, I'm going to be up anyway. I'm happy totally. to drive. Uh, but man on overnight drives, the second shift is what you don't want. Oh, because it's yeah, it's like second shift is you've, you've hopefully gotten at least a nap in. And likely you didn't, you know, so it's like, no. it's so dangerous to be like, Hey, it's five in the morning. It's your turn to drive. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, I haven't slept yet, but let's go. You know? But if you wake up and you're like, I got a fly and Jay and you could just go right in and the sun's kind of coming up. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can, you can usually rip it. I mean, we're all still here. So that's exactly. a testament to these systems actually working. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So where are, are you in Philly right now? Or uh, you've always I, been a little bit on the outskirts, right? Well, I, there's like Philly has its many neighborhoods, like any, um, big city, big city yeah. lived in West Philly, lived in Germantown over the span of 12 years, both Philly proper. And now I'm like 10 minutes outside of the, no, I'm actually like five minutes from the city line, um, where okay. I live now. It's like the suburbs. It's a very quiet neighborhood. It's very quaint. Love that. I feel Do like you- the neighborhood weirdo kind of. Right. I mean, hey, you're you're near everything you want and there's parking. So that's like the ideal oh. thing when you're older, you know? Totally. Totally. Um, so is every so everybody's like in town cuz I know for a while Aaron wasn't in Pennsylvania. He was he was back west this way a little bit. Is he is he actually in uh on the East Coast again? No, he's full-time uh resident in Idaho. That's what I thought. He lives okay. in uh, very close to Boise. Yeah, and him and his um, two children and wife live in this awesome house that he built. I mean, they might have already outgrown it by the time the dream was incepted to completion. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's he's doing it out in Idaho. That's where her family's from. So Got it's it. a rarity that we're all together. In one place, yeah, of course. Or even like three of us at the same time together. Usually it's like a friend's band's in town or family party or something like that. But Beaver and Mike live 15 minutes from me. Easy drive in West Philly. So, and so is it this kind of thing where when you guys all get together to start rehearsing, it's like the nice family reunion sort of a thing. 
Yeah, it's weird. Uh, I'm like all business because time's limited, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that might come off as like calloused or something sometimes. Or I, I'll reflect back on practices and I'll feel like, oh, man, I didn't ask anybody about the last three months of their life. Right. I just had to play gentleman, you know? <laughs> um, but, yeah, the time's limited, you know, when you all get together yeah. A lot of hugs and stuff, but then it's like let's let's get into shake the rust off. Totally, yeah. I've you know it sounds like your band kind of works the same way ours does. Where whenever we've been asked, like, man, I mean, your band's obviously been together ten year, like ten plus years longer than we have. But like that thing of, oh, how does your band still? How are you guys still together after all this time? Or yeah. kind of a thing. And for us, we always say it's like because we're really good at giving each other space. Like totally. as soon as we get home from tour, we all scatter and like, you know, it's the same, like we'll see each other at a friend. If a mutual friend comes to play a show in town, maybe we'll see each other there. Yep. Uh, I talk to Nick pretty often cause we work together on a lot of different things, but like, even so, like, so when we do finally get together to practice, it's like this great, like, yeah. Like, so what's your life been like? Like what's yeah. up? We, we, like Elliot is always the one that we always have to say, like, give us a newsletter. Like what's going on in your life? Totally. From the top of like Mount Everest, Elliot's yeah. waving in short shorts. You're totally. Like, hey, looks good, buddy. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited that you guys are doing this tour. Um, yeah. I'm sure it's going to, I know this thing has been, you've been pulling this, these tours uphill just nonstop, just, you know. Like I'm, I'm happy it's finally going to happen for everybody though. Um, the show's all about first experiences, things like that, you know? And, uh, I mean, just right out the gate, I don't know if I know this. Are you Pennsylvania native native? Like, are you from there originally? Yes. I was born and raised, um, like again, like five minutes outside of West Philadelphia. Okay. Awesome. Pennsylvania, my whole, whole life. I have Pennsylvania pride. Yeah. I love it. I love the state. It's awesome state. It's expansive. It has, mountains trees everything we absolutely yeah um and when mountains, you were... trees that's every state by the way like <laughs> not every state just such a basic vision of pennsylvania pennsylvania is a very nuanced state yeah. i'll leave it at that i was gonna say i don't think kansas has mountains you got more than yeah. kansas Ozarks, um, i don't know where that they are <laughs> um Our... so when you were, I was curious though. So when you were young, what was the first uh, thing musically that you connected with that you loved as a kid? I feel like this is definitely has to be like a few stages. Like sure. um, the first record, and this is going to sound silly and almost fake that I like. Had Don't say minor an, threat. <laughs> no, not at all. Not I'm at kidding, all. Had I'm an kidding. emotional response to it. Like painted a whole different vision of the world to me that I had not even known existed. And it helped me make sense of certain like things that were going on that as like a fifth grader, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, Dr. Dre's the chronic. No BS. Yeah. Had that in like 93, a cassette of it. Like right after like all the Rodney King uh, stuff went down after the verdict. And that record kind of opened my eyes to just a different voice I don't think I was ready for some of the content on it. Yeah. But uh, that was like the first like autonomous purchase by me as like a music consumer that my parents weren't buying me. Um, totally. I, I got it at a place called Tunes on the Dunes on the Ocean City Boardwalk. 
if you're from the tri-state area and have been to Ocean City and you were into music, like that's where you could get all kinds of stuff. And they had great hardcore records and ska records and hip hop. And they would sell you the parental advisory because it was like an indie shop. They're not shutting that down. I love that. Yeah, you, yeah. That that's always like the good hookup when you're like, oh, I could go there. Like they're not gonna they're not gonna care. That's yeah, but you buy like two records and you put the, the like boys to men tape on top, like knowing they they probably are just gonna scan or you flip it over. Right. So they yeah. Can just scan the back. Right. 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 And but even why did that like induce fear? Were we not allowed to buy it legally? I mean, yeah, but like, who's like, there's not going to be a cop there to, you Enforcer. know, like, yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. There was a, there was a, a record store around the corner for me that, um, depending on which, uh, which employee yes. I got would, would be cool with it. You know, whether I was buying like, you know, I don't think, a maybe a pearl did 10 have a parental advisory on it. Cause I remember he does say fuck in that record. I think it did. It might've had like a low key. I kind of feel like, um, Versus had one for some reason. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple F's on that record. There definitely is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh man, that's it's interesting. You're talking about like the the opening your eyes up to things that that you weren't really aware. Or, or I'm wondering if it's just more like the hearing it hearing it from the real side with that yes. Dr. Dre record. Because yeah, I mean, I was reflecting back on a lot of stuff uh, in the last year, even about how I remember it as a kid versus the actuality of things, because as a kid, you're just kind of hearing by proxy, like what your parents are watching on the news or something like that and how that's being reported. So like, for instance, I was, you know, like I remember, because I think we're around the same, we're pretty close in the same age, but like, we're not going to disclose that exact information, (laughs) piece of information, but like Dr. Dr. Kevorkian was like painted a monster. Yeah. When we were when we were kids, like he was like the butt of like this guy's the Grim Reaper joke or, you know, kind of a thing. And then you get older and you realize it's like he was helping people who were terminally ill not have to go through that kind of a thing. And it's like it was he was actually a lot more. It was coming from a place of compassion, but they were but he was painted in the news media as like this monster. So, Serial yeah, killer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like shows like in Living Color uh, and, and you know, like a lot of the comedy of that era, like focused in on people like Kevorkian or Rodney or like the, you know, can't we all just get along? Like Those were all butts of jokes in the nineties, yeah. which is crazy to think about when in actuality it was like so much more serious than all of those things. And, and people like Dr. Dre and, and, uh, it, like it spoke truth to a lot of those things that, yeah, I, I could see being in a thing that opened your mind when you were a kid. Totally. Yeah. And like a lot of the records party music, but there is like four or five songs that are like, have some seriously heavy content. Yeah. That uh, just, like I said, it helped me understand a a perspective that I may not have agreed with at the time, but it was a voice to that. And uh, it just like opened up a whole different um, world of like compassion or empathy. Like, oh, there's sides to stories. Right. And, and they matter. 100%. But yeah, as far as that, that's like, I don't want to get too crazy on that. Because like, yeah, uh, it's a still a great record. I I listen to it often. But more to your point, I feel like what got me into music, kind of like playing music physically. I mean, anything. Yeah. Thing that's something that you, I mean, that makes sense for that being a record that you connected with because you learned from it. But like, yeah. So like, I guess maybe going forward, what are some other things that you felt like, oh man, like this is, this is for me. I feel like we're going to have a couple of similarities here. Did I say simi? 
similarities. Um, <laughs> Green Day's Dookie, when that came out, uh, they didn't look much older than me. And I was in like seventh grade and I'm like three piece band playing power chords. You know, that was one. I'm not a fan of them now per se. Like I love Kerplunk. I'll put on Kerplunk and, and, and enjoy it. But Dookie, I can't tell you half the songs on it. I, I don't love it the way I love other records that mm-hmm. I got in that error. Sure. Uh, and still listen to, to this day very seriously. Yeah. You know? But they were like the kickoff kind of like punk exists. You know, you, right. you, you, you can't get that stuff. Uh, we didn't have the internet. So like it had to be on MTV. If you were in middle school, you had to see it on late night on MTV, 120 minutes. Mm-hmm. If you wanted alternative music, there wasn't many outlets to just go and get music. And when you got a, a physical CD, even if it sucked, you listened to it over and over and over. And then you eventually like fell in love with it, knowing it was bad. Not yeah. saying Duke Dookie's that, right. but you know, no, I get what you're saying completely. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is such a, a deeper appreciation for, uh, for music in a lot of ways, just because, yeah, it's like you spent maybe your allowance on this CD That's and it. then you're like, well, I don't know if I like it, but I'm going to keep listening to it because it's going to be a while before I can buy another CD. So I have to find something I, to enjoy from this. <laughs> yes. You know, you get that fastball record. Right, yeah. Collective nah. soul. You're like, oh yeah. man, I bought this collective soul record. I thought it was going to be good. Well, I feel like we were getting fleeced with Collective Soul. Like, sorry if any of these guys ever hear this, but like, <laughs> I feel like they got pitched in the soup of like the grunge movement and you yes. just keep banging a song over and over again. And there to was a, a smaller person, you're like, oh, Collective Soul's like Nirvana. They're mm-hmm. in the same genre, the same category. And it's like, sorry, they're not. That's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a whole conversation right there that that's something i've never actually like really talked with anyone uh out loud about but yeah you're totally right there like once uh once the grunge movement was like very in your face it was like every record label was like grow your hair out yes. and it'll it will we'll throw a flannel around your waist and now you have candle box <laughs> and now candle box are like yes the the death toll of that whole thing like i would always pick up the candle box cd be like, do I want to buy this? And yeah. I would flip it over. I probably like browsed and picked up that CD more than any other record had never buying it. But right. I always was like, well, it's on every, every couple hours on MTV, you know? Yeah. Song's totally. all right for you's All right. I guess it's kind of yeah. hard. Far behind. Pretty good. Far it's behind. Not, yeah. yeah. Like, but in action, but yeah, exactly. It's like, there was no, there's no bite to it. Like the way Nirvana had bite or. Yeah. You it know. doesn't feel real. Like they were a real band. It was like candle boxes, dudex that got some people around them. Right. I mean, but, it's funny. You know. Like even like, uh, at the time when you're young, you don't, you can't really spot the difference, but even like blind melon, which is so far, not grunge. But, yes. the, but you're like guy has long hair and the video shot in kind of a grungy way. Like, yeah, this is grunge, but you're like, it's not grunge. Totally. And that video would come on after like in bloom. Yeah. And you're like, all right, they're, they're like cohorts. Totally. I definitely had the first two blind melon records. Yeah. I can't tell you any songs that are on them, Yeah, but I got sucked in and I would buy that stuff. 
totally you know? like crash test dummies all of those all of yes. those sorts of things yeah it's <laughs> man the, it, i was uh just the other night at dinner i was talking about like there's so many songs that in the time when i was young especially when i started discovering like heavier or like you know more aggressive music i was like oh i fucking hate this song and then now that i'm older i'm like i i, I ride with, i ride with it and my big example is like i hated the wallflowers when i was a kid oh dude but those you know that first record those those singles i can i i think they're fantastic now yeah both those you got uh sixth avenue heartache which yep. if that if, or fifth at one fifth of the avenues avenue. I think it's pick, fifth, yeah. pick an avenue that comes on when i'm driving like i could like pull over and reminisce and like <laughs> shed a tear and i'm not a fan of the wallflower so right th- those dudes knocked it out of the park for whatever they did uh with those two tracks yeah one I, i'm completely with you it's it's funny how that works um so what was your uh, what was your first concert that you went to? First concert, I was scheduled to see Green Day and the Queers Sch- at the convention scheduled. center. <laughs> scheduled. I was scheduled to see a couple <laughs> concerts. Um, this was like got into got pretty heavy into Green Day. Got all the records. Go into the mall buying like Green Day shirts. Yeah, full full tilt Green Day. Green Day, Queers, I want to say Screeching Weasel maybe at the convention center. Couldn't go because I got sick the day before. And my mom was like kind of one of those people that like, hey, if you're saying you're sick, you're sick. I don't care if you look better at five o'clock. And I, it might have been a miscalculation on my part. I might have just wanted to get out of school. Not knowing gotcha on the what was at stake, you know, you, your your kid brain doesn't really rationalize like that. Right. So my sister and her friends who don't like Green Day at all, like my sister had like Steve Miller band CD and like Tupac, <laughs> all eyes on me. Like she had the just classic, a little bit of classic rock, a little hip hop, a little dance. So it felt like getting stabbed in the stomach, uh, knowing that her and her friends are going to see Green Day. And my best friend got to tag along with them, uh, the Green Day fan. Oof. So, yeah, uh, that was supposed to be slated. My first like official show, I went to Lollapalooza in 94. Oh, wow. Um, with Green Day guy named Tim, my best friend, still my best friend. Yeah. And my father uh, took us to FDR Park in Philly. Uh, hot, well- hot day, hot slightly rainy muddy day in the summer who'd you see it was uh 94 headliner was smashing pumpkins which that's siamese dream was like the record for me growing up so Mm. uh was the pumpkins beastie boys breeders nick cave atari teenage riot and tribe called quest it was just like shit a dream and like i was going into eighth grade so And my dad was a barber. So you know the haircuts where you had like the split down the middle and then you shaved underneath? Oh, yeah. Me and the homie got fresh undershaves that day. I'm wearing a pumpkin shirt. He's wearing a Green Day shirt. Just like like a classic butthead image to me. Oh, I love that. Of like myself, like looking back. Or like, you know, you play a show and you see like a dad with like a pack of kids and you're like, bless you for doing this. Because this is really important to these guys. And if you're not going to let them go by themselves, I'd rather you bring your kids to our shows. I think it's awesome. But when you're there, it's like, just leave us alone. We're going to stand over here. All right. Yeah. Stand in the back. Just pick me up in the parking lot. Yeah. yeah. This wasn't that. This was 
we're standing there watching Tribe Called Quest, and my dad's like sniffing the air. He's like, "You smell that? It's marijuana. It's marijuana." <laughs> I'm like, "What is that?" Because I'm like, I yeah. not in that world. And it wasn't like he was judging. He was just alerting me, like, "Hey," or he was getting like the cold sweats from like the '60s, like just being around it. <laughs> but I, I remember just being like, "Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I yeah. don't care. Like, it's fine." Right, right, right. And I tried to get him to wear a shirt to look cool, and he, like, snapped on me the night before. Mind you, this guy's probably, like, younger than I am now. Right. Taking me to these shows. You know, back in the day, people had kids younger. Of course. What kind of music uh, did he like? He liked a little bit of everything. He liked Cream. Like, one of his favorite records, and he'll admit this, is Blood Brothers Crimes. Holy shit, what? He came to a bunch of shows, and... He was only like probably in his like late forties when he was coming to those shows, seeing right. us when we tour with him. Oh my god, that brought me back. Yeah, I forgot about that tour. Is you guys Blood Brothers Coheed? Yes, yes. Um, but wow. he got into that, so his musical taste varies. He wasn't like I like this, I like that. If it, he had like weird eighties techno. This this band called Visage, but he had Blondie, the Beatles, all just like. So he listened to somebody, good music. Yeah, but he wasn't like a music head. He didn't right. know he he really listened to good. He maybe he knows. I'm maybe I'm selling my dad short. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember like one of my sister's friends left a "Wish You Were Here" Pink Floyd T-shirt. It's probably like a small, right? And I'm like, I think you, I think you should wear it. I think you should wear it. I'm trying to get him to fit in, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, over my dead body, I'm not wearing <laughs> this this Pink Floyd shirt to Lollapalooza '94. <laughs> But that was like the first big show that I ever went to. It, it was a huge, huge impression on me. I love that. Start that's so to cool. finish. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, that's a good first one too, man. Yeah. Drums were my first instrument. Um, again, Tim, my friend Tim has a lot to do with a lot of the firsts. He got a guitar for Christmas one year. And Green Day is a three-piece. We just need a bass player. I don't, I'm not going to play bass, so I'll get the drum set. So that's basically how it went down um we had a blizzard i shoveled snow my dad agreed to pay 50 percent up to a point for a drum set if you can produce this money and a godsend we get 20 inches of snow i can go up to every old lady's house shovel 10 bucks raised enough money in a weekend to basically convince my dad yeah drum set's a good idea so he took me around we were going to music stores and as a kid, that stuff's so overwhelming. Um, but we settled on a drum kit that we bought from this guy's basement. He was like a shady dealer of like really shitty drum sets. He had like blue, black, red, white in the basement of like a piano shop that like didn't have a piano in it. I just remember that. Like, it's weird, just junk everywhere. Yeah. It's like a junk collector type guy. 350 bucks. Take it right now. And uh, that's was how it I like, got my first drum set. Did it? Ha- was it a brand or was it he was he making? Yeah, them? it's Were a shady brand, very shady brand. I'm I don't know if it was like a regional thing. Yeah. I have met other dudes that have had this brand. TKO. Do, are oh. you familiar with this? No, I mean I I know those letters for for other things, but TKO drums, interesting. TKO, uh, pure garbage symbols. Like they were the symbols. If you hit them, they started bending. Like. They would just be like these bent. They didn't sound good. You know, yeah. I, 
and like I was thinking about this even before you wrote me. It's a wonder a, a lot of kids get past the preliminary stage of music because most times they get beginner instruments or like stuff that just doesn't sound good or guitars that you can't tune. No matter what you do, this $55 junk guitar is not going to tune right. Therefore, it's never going to sound good. So like this drum set was right on par with that. Like it would either like talk you out of being a drummer or if you had some diligence, but it, it sounded like trash TKO. It's a, it's a very real thing to say. I just, uh, I just interviewed Laura Jane Grace last week and she was saying like the first guitar that she had, like, and I, and I, I remember this too, with the first guitar I had, it's like, you had to push so hard on the strings to even make a sound. Yeah. They're like so high off the, yeah, off the, the action, <laughs> the action's so high. And it's like, you're just, and I was, I told her, I was like, I had really bad eczema as a kid. So like, just my fingers were just shredded and I couldn't make a sound out of this thing, but I was so I, all I wanted in the world was to be able to play guitar. So like, yeah, exactly. It's the diligence, but a lot of kids that's like, you're hitting them at the time when they just want everything to, to just make sense and work like, Oh, I want this to sound like a drum set. Did you know it was a bad drum set when you were a kid? No, I didn't really realize till I got a, a second kit and right. I was like, Oh, and then I'm calling them my babies and I'm <laughs> wiping them down and, I'm really proud of them. It was was a Pearl, uh, not a Pearl. Um, Everybody had a Pearl. I think the drummer from Live had a Pearl kit, and Live was just, like, always doing stuff. And he played backwards in the Unplugged set, and I always thought that was cool. Even though, like, throwing copper, shout-outs, Pennsylvania, throwing copper. I'll still ride for that, maybe low-key. I don't know, though. I haven't listened to a while. A lot of great songs. Anyway, Live, Pearl, where am I going? It was a Premier Ganista kit. Uh, it's like green. I used it on A to B life and catch for us the foxes. So it made it pretty far. And like studio guys didn't have a problem with it. So it was a, a nice drum set. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. You, you, you held onto it for, for quite yeah, a while. Premier's like an English company. And from what I know, like their 70s stuff is like pretty sought after. And it was like a, a kit from the eighties. So before we get into, um, obviously like me without you stuff. I was actually what, uh, to get into uh, more early experiences with playing drums and stuff. Do you remember the start, first song you learned how to play on drums was? That's weird. Cause drums are one of those instruments when you get them, you just bang them, bang on them. And then yeah. you eventually are like, Oh, you keep rhythm. So it's really hard to say. I was playing along to my dad's old records. Um, I think he was like, if you're going to do this, I'm going to set up, my LPs and put on headphones and play along to them. And that was like, like I said earlier, like the BGs, like Saturday night fever. I'm playing a lot of like four on the floor type. Yeah. Stuff. Where it's just like, you're, it's easy to kind of get into rhythm and going back to Weezer. Cause you had mentioned the blue album yeah. and Pinkerton blue album in particular is like a intro drummer's dream. It's all like four four most of it's mid-tempo the fills are not complicated it's great drumming for the music but that record i felt like really accomplished where i'm like i could play along to this whole album and then like the return of the rentals i don't know if you're familiar with that record oh yeah um those two it's his name pat wilson i think is the drummer for weezer but he played on both those albums and those were records that were like confidence boosters 
to get oh, to great. like doing like Nirvana and stuff. Dave Grohl, even though it's like pretty straightforward, he adds like a whole different touch and dimension to playing drums. But Weezer's Blue album, I'd recommend to any new drummer to put it on and just play along to it. Oh, that's great. Did uh you're someone who is a hard hitting drummer, which is one of my favorite things in the world. Did that come quick? Like were you did you find yourself like pounding on him pretty quick or did that come over time? That came, I think, the like probably the first time we ever played in public. It was like, like if I'm gonna thing. if I'm gonna do this, like and you're gonna be looking at me, I'm gonna at least try to entertain you. Right. Over time it became natural and now I'm trying to not hit as hard and I've learned so much. I mean, you know what your vocal range is and what you can do and when to push and stuff and mm-hmm. what what parts of the show, not that you're going through the motions, but what part of the show like I got to lean back here because this big thing's coming up, you know? Does that make sense? It, completely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It, it's it's like um an analogy we could use is uh, the for people who don't swear all the time when when it's important to drop the to, to uh, drop the swear word. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. So hitting hard. I mean, you know, uh, like any instrument, you're gonna have every, especially if your stuff's online on YouTube, you're gonna have every critic in the world every defender and every critic on every post asking, why are you doing this? Why do you have your sticks backwards? It's like, I don't know. I just did. I didn't know there was one way I had to do this, you know? Yeah. There's, come on. There's I don't that, do yeah. that anymore. Uh, the, the butt ends of the stick, but I used to, I used to slam and with the heavy part of the stick, which was like just doubly punishing probably to some people in the front and my ears. Sure. Eventually. But I mean, it, you accomplished uh, being your own drummer. And I mean, like, I, I'll probably end up saying it once or once or twice more. But like, you're you've always been one of my favorite drummers. And uh, so especially with like knowing I would have you on the show is exciting because not only have, from way before I ever met you, you know, like seeing you live and, and just what you do. It's it's always been really exciting. And uh, I, I've always really appreciated what you did. So um uh, don't listen to people because if you play your sticks backwards, it just made it more sick. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, do I want to be known as the hard hitting drummer or the best timekeeping drummer? And I think I'm a little bit good at like all of it, you know, and I'm happy with what I've put out there in the world as far as my musical sensibilities. You, and was, te- cause yeah, I mean, tempo with, with you is, is extremely inc- impressive. Has, has, was tempo something that came uh, naturally to you? Do you think it was playing along to stuff like Weezer because it was so mid tempo? Yeah. Like, so locked stuff- in. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just like music. I like rhythm. I'm not like, I don't identify as a drummer. I know that sounds like, like, you know, like there's people that are always filming themselves playing drums or the guy backstage that has the practice pad and he's not really listening to you and he's nodding when you're like, yo, I just had the best, most slamming Thai food down the street. There, I, I know tons of dudes like that and I love it. I love it so much. That's just not me. Like I feel yeah. like kind of like the working class, like I know what I can do. I do it to my best ability and then I kind of check out. Um, yeah. I don't even have a drum set set up in my home that I can practice or my garage. So it's infrequent and it has been for years, but I, I love the instrument. And like I said, 
<clears throat> I know my limitations and I'm very comfortable with where I got. I'm not trying to push boundaries or, you know, just like, uh, I remember Brad Wood, we're recording, um, brother, sister or catch maybe. And he's like, no, lay back. Don't do that crazy fill. He's like the guy from ACDC. I don't know his name. He's like, he plays the same drum beat in every song, but yeah. he holds it down. Yeah. And that like little like quips about drummers from people that I respect, like Brad or him passing on records to me and be like, yo, you're playing reminds me of this. And it's really structured and simple, but it's like the backbone of the beat. Um, those little things have always stuck with me. And now when I listen to ACDC, they're another great band. If you want to play along as a drummer, totally, you don't really need that much skill. You just have to get locked in to like a, yeah. a rhythm. And 100%. by the way, I'm not a diehard. I'm not even an ACDC fan. I'll mess well, with back am, in black. So yeah. Fine. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like they fall in like a weird zone. Like they're not, not cool. And they're not like the coolest to me. You know, I once wrote a paper in psychology class in high school about how and I got a B on it um, about <laughs> how, you know, how like when you're young, you just want to fit your you want to fit what you're into into any class, even though it doesn't make any sense. So I wrote a paper in psychology class that had no real basis on any fact at all, which was just um, how the opening note of every ACDC song has the ability to get you pumped pumped yeah i'm sure the teacher was like maybe we could word this a little differently right yeah i was i was like yeah the, as soon as you hear an opening note of an acdc song you're like oh fuck yeah totally i just got like a little shot down the neck thinking about um hell's bells starting and like i said i'm not even a fan but their intros their first notes are very identifiable and you're either gonna rise at a football game <laughs> or like look for someone to brawl with in a bar it's just like not, there's no in between yeah, there's no in between yeah. it's exactly and, and i'm with you i mean give me give me back in black give me uh highway to hell yeah um and then give me songs from the other records you know like i'll, I'll give give me some a uh, track or two from uh uh rock and roll ain't noise pull or no sorry uh for those about to rock um, yeah, I mean, fucking it, it's, yeah, they're, they're such a fun band to listen to, but yeah, I could totally see that with playing drums. Uh, you know, just like it, it's straightforward, but the songs are fun to play along. To yeah. And do it with passion and do it well. That's the other part of Brad. He's like, he did it very well to where right, you're right. not, you're not listening per se to the drums in an ACDC song as a casual listener, but there's something behind all that driving the songs. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what What was your first band? Hey, uh, I was wondering if this was going to come up and I was in bed last night at like three in the morning. I was like, oh, that was my first band. So I wouldn't call them bands. Okay. Sure. I had with the, the Green Day guy, Tim. Yeah. Uh, a band called Lactate. That was like kind of punk sounding. Yeah. Uh, not many songs. We also morphed into a band called the crappy vegetables and this is just two dudes and like we'd film ourselves on a friday night and my kid brother would be like six years old with a camcorder and we're just yeah. playing songs um covers or original covers and then like jankly riffs that he had but there's one like heartbreaking videotape uh my brother's like in his baseball uniform filming and i'm playing drums and he's filming me and i'm like making angry faces at him i guess i didn't like that the angle he was cutting me at or 
I felt like he was missing something. A couple years ago, I'm at my family's house, VCRs out, we're going through tapes, and it's like, oh, it's Ricky playing drums, and everybody's laughing. You see me, like, mouthing things to my kid brother, right? And this is something that I just want to atone for. The the video cuts with me going over, grabbing, and you see the camera start to shake, I'm sorry, and then it cuts. Like, <laughs> it's it, like, shocked me. I was like, yo, I knew I was, like, a little rough with you, but, like, Man, I just like, I just felt like such an asshole watching this back. Right. Like, yo, I mean, that's, that's like br- abusive. Like, I'm telling you, yeah. like, struggle with the camera. And like those VHS, you could hear it and like see like it moving cool. around. Yeah, yeah. And then it just cuts. That's <laughs> right. Was, were those tapes just so you could like listen to back, like listen back? Or did, was it like kind of feeling, you know, a little bit MTV ish in that yeah, young age? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Like, I don't know what, like, if you were ever, you were definitely in bands and stuff. Like, we would have the single cassette recorder and we'd dangle it in the middle of the room and yeah. it would sway and get grainy and you'd use the same tape over and over and we would just record whatever basically came to mind. And, that's how like we just listen back over and over it's like well we did that even if it was like playing like hey joe by Jimi hendrix it was just like that's what we were working with uh and i'm i didn't come on here to be like that's all we had back in the day but it's really true like absolutely um, yeah so real quick back to the first band thing Tim met some dudes our freshman year in high school. We went to different high schools. He's like, hey, these dudes play bass and guitar. Let's have them over on a Friday night. So I'm like, okay. They bring their instruments in, all garbage instruments, barely can play. And I'm like looking at them. And I'd just gotten into like minor thread and bad brains. I had an uncle who passed that on. Like the logical, you go from like Green Day to No Effects to Pennywise. 100%. 100%. Eventually down to like just crass. They're just crass yeah. down there. And you're like, <laughs> it's a long arc to get there. But um, the recording quality just lessens and lessens. Yeah. And, and that's what and now yeah. that's like what I want to listen to. I'm not trying right, yeah. to listen to Punk and Drug. Like I respect it. It's fun, yeah. fun album. Um, So I didn't quite recognize like scene clothing and having listened to Minor Thread and having this uncle. I'm like, oh, these dudes have Doc Martens on. These dudes have bomber jackets on. And their heads are shaved. And I'm just like a Nirvana, Green Day kind of dork. And I'm like, I don't feel that great about this situation. We're playing like Wild Thing and stuff in my parents' basement. A couple days later, it's like, hey, that was fun. You want to come over to my house, bring your drum set, and uh, I'll write a couple songs, blah, blah, blah. Load my dad's car. I have to do two trips to drop it off. So I drop off the kit, and then I got to go get Tim's amp and pick up Tim or whatever. And my dad was doing the loop. I get back to the house. There's like six or seven guys in bomber jackets, shaved heads, braces, playing my drums on the front lawn. They never even loaded it. And I had to be like, yo, that's my kit. And I was supremely, supremely uncomfortable that point and I never had contact with those people again. Yeah. But like going into this basement and it's basically eight skinheads drinking yeah. and me and Tim and like they're high school skinheads. They're not like right. giving me like yeah. pamphlets of information and that's <laughs> high school skinheads are not getting a pass on your show. 
I'm going to say that right now. If they were at a local show, (laughs) stop them in the back. Clear it out. Like, yeah. But um, I don't even think they're involved. There was no movement in my area. It was like a pretty integrated area. But it was enough to know, like, I don't identify with white power. Right. I don't like the vibe of these guys and it's probably dangerous in certain situations to be around them. So the nasties, very short lived band. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was one of those things you already had the band name before you even jammed. That's the most junior high, high school thing ever. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, it's an gotta, idea. You're, you're drawing logos before you have anything. Totally. Else. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The logo drawings, very crucial to making this whole thing work. What was, what was the first, do you remember what the first show you ever played was? Um, me and Mike Weiss were in a band with one of the actual founders of what I would call me without you. There's like a demo called blood enough for us all that floats around. Yeah. And it's kind of like, we were listening to like cave in and, um, just like more thrashy stuff before cave in put out Jupiter. Um, yeah. Is that the record? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like until your heart stops era. Yeah, just Screamo. We were doing Screamo stuff. Yeah. And my friend yeah. had an 8-track and we recorded it. But before, right before that, we had a band and we were going by like Reader. And then it changed to the new math. And it, it was like, I would say Midwestern emo band. It was like okay. 1998, 99. And we had like nine or ten songs and we played a cafe in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Okay. And there was probably 15, 20 people there, friends, like throwing up before the gig. Like, I'm just so nervous. I didn't I didn't want any parts of playing live. I just didn't feel like I was there yet. I don't like to present things to people unless they're, the idea is, like, fleshed out. And I knew I right. just wasn't tight. And I probably botched some of the songs, but who cares, you know? How did you end up meeting Mike? Through this mutual friend. <clears throat> um, uh, I was trying to date his sister and he was like a gatekeeper brother like hey if you (laughs) wanted you got to come over to my family's house have dinner with us and then through this dinner he's like hey i have recording stuff upstairs i have a drum set and i have these songs so i'm like all right i'll play with you yeah week later he's like i got some guys to do a band and it was mike and like whenever one person came like Greg and Aaron, they would all come. They were like a skate crew that okay. that made movies and stuff. There was like 15, 20 of these guys. I knew them from sight, but I never thought I would be friends with them. They had like purple hair, like Aaron, skin tight Smith shirt and a, a, um, a Vespa, like a powder blue Vespa with his girlfriend on the back in high school. And you're like, yo, who are these dudes? Like, right. who are the Smiths? Uh, right. So that's how I linked up with these guys from trying to date somebody my junior year of high school. I love that. Yeah, it's it's very roundabout how it happened. And then eventually it was like, let's do a heavy band and let's let's did that just because I'm trying to I'm trying to place, I guess, Mike White's a little bit was was that pre or post him being an I hate you? It was post. Okay. It was post I hate you. And that's what this dude would say. He's like, oh, he was in I hate you. And I'm like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> looking back, I'd follow that I hate you account. It's like, yo, they play with dead guy. They play with ink and dagger. Like, 
and it was just like all like whatever to Mike. He just didn't care. Right. And I'm like, dude, you're like kind of like a low key legend and I'm playing with you. So totally. I had respect for him. Like I got to go to like, they did a reunion before the reunion in a house in Westchester. And I was in high school and Mike took me along and I was like, yo, this is rad. Like we need to do this, but like different. And this other guy was writing heavier type music, screamo. And we recorded demo and then we got together and played it. He left. And then me, Mike and Aaron were like, yo, we can keep this going. Like some of these songs are awesome. Mike's got awesome songs. It'll be like drive like Jehu. That was like one of the early. Yeah. And I had no idea who they were. So they would feed me music because I'm still like basically like 16 or 17. And, um, I wasn't in like a scene the way they were going to shows and stuff. I don't know if my parents would have been cool with that. Like shows every night. And, um, but yeah, we just, that's basically how the whole thing even started. Got it. So that first, the, the blood enough for us all that was recorded with a friend, like on like an eight track you were saying. Yes. Yeah. And like a night, like five songs and then Aaron wrote words and screamed on it. And we were playing a show like, a few weeks after that. Um, right. And it was whatever. I wouldn't call it a show. We like played at a college around here. Or, like their spring fest. We were the first of like an all day thing. No one cared. <laughs> but the first show that me, Mike and Aaron played when we decided, Hey, we're going to do this with or without yeah. person. Um, yeah. Aaron was playing bass. I always forget. There was like, Aaron played bass for like two years for us. Uh, Whoa. they weren't our finest years. What's up? Bass and sang. Yeah. Yeah. If you could say that, (laughs) um, cause my friend Tim, he's got a YouTube channel. He's got all our first performances. I'm like, I wish you wouldn't, but slim bucket. (laughs) If you're interested on YouTube. Um, and we were like playing, we had two shows booked in one day, one at a college and one at a church 10 miles away. The college show, the bass amp got cut out. So it was just guitar and drums, the guitar. I think both at one point were out. So it was just screaming and drums, but we rallied enough people that they were going off. Like all our friends came and it made it seem like it was way cooler than it was. It was like super embarrassing. Then we went on, played the same four songs. Five hours later, it was just as bad. Just, I don't know how we, I really don't know how we pushed through. Yeah, I, I don't perseverance of being young and just yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, just ugh, it was awful. <laughs> yeah, I just remember looking at Aaron. Yeah, and he's like, just his eyes were like, keep going, don't stop yeah. playing the song. I'll scream and grab anybody and all yeah. that. So yeah, yeah. And then when you when you went in to record the that that first like you know the EP that I think people might connect to the most uh from your early early stuff which was the i never said i was brave ep yep uh was that your first time going into like was that recorded at an actual recording studio yeah are you familiar with creep records i as i was doing research i was reading about this so this guy eric victor ran creep records and that's who recorded that and i was looking at the records that creep put out and i was like oh my god it's like kind of all over the place like all over the place but for out here it was like fairly iconic. I bet. And it's like, 
you're going to like all these shows, um, Plow United and Weston and all these bands are associated with Creep. So to be in the Creep studio, it was like a really special thing. Um, yeah. And we recorded that in a few hours, but real embarrassing story about that. We're listening to the mixes. I'm feeling like high on life. I'm, I'm loving it. And, you know, they have a wall where people tag stuff and like Rick to life was up there and I was like, yo, we're recording. I, I, he might've just been there and tagged the wall. Cause it was like, a, <laughs> it was the creep house. Cause right. they had distro, they had a physical space. They had a label. It was like this huge independent operation. So I got bold and I wrote me without you on the wall, taken over. I, I like taken over. Uh, all right. We just recorded four or five songs. Yeah. We're taking over. So ashamed. We were going back to do vocals the next day. Changed it to raking Bover because the, the guys gave me so much trash. I was like, we'll just make it like an absurd kind of thing. Of course. To this day, raking Bover still gets said in jest. If like something's going bad, it's like raking Bover. So <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an early inside joke. I get it. It, it makes sense. Totally. <laughs> and it's like, it's just when you're just feeling so good about what you're doing. Yeah. You're just pumped. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that first exp recording experience was good for you. You felt great about it. Yeah. I mean, it was like you had two or three takes to do it. And I, yeah, I remember, did you, do it did you do it live or yeah, was it definitely. track by track? I remember I'd never seen like, he might've been using like cool edit pro, but my family, yeah, we had a computer, but I'd never saw software and I'm watching him do it. I'm like, you know how to use this stuff. And he just turned and. And like smuggler is like, yeah. And I was like, of course, you know how to, you're using it in front of me, questioning this person. Uh, I got the sense that he didn't want to be bothered while he was editing. Sure. But yeah. Uh, that's all. I mean, and then what was, what was kickstart audio that put that out? That's our good friend, Colin, um, Colin Comstock. He was a dude that booked local shows in the, the suburbs and yeah. he booked our first like real show with Nora. I don't know if you remember them. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like the last of like 12 bands. I think okay. Kazam, a uh, level of intensity, like bands, they're just local bands. Yeah. Um, he was like, he saw us a few times. He's like, Hey, I have this time at the studio. Do you want to do a split with my band? They were called the revolver method. And if you were like, from like our area, you probably saw them. They were always playing shows and stuff, but he ponied up the money. Then at a certain point, he's like, yo, I love this. I want to make it its own thing. And kickstart, they, it was very small. It wasn't anything. I think there was like maybe 500 of the original pressed. And we did a tour with them. The day it came out, we did a tour down the Florida, like okay. two bands in a van was that your first tour? Very low rent, very as amateur as you could imagine something being. Like getting to shows and the doors locked and the bartender's like, there's no show tonight. And you're like, <laughs> oh, but you could set up and play. And then we would see like flyers like One King Down. And we're like, yo, we're playing where One King Down played to nobody. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that was something. It was like uh formidable haunting type experience but yeah that's did you enjoy it though 
Yeah, I did. Um, it really had no value. It didn't like add or subtract. Our Chris Kleinberg, our original guitarist, he left two, three days into the trip. He was like, let me out. We just let him out on the, the highway and he got home somehow Whoa. from like the Carolinas. Yeah. yeah. And me, Mike, and Aaron just went on and did our thing. And there's some kids that come to shows in Florida that were at those shows. Holy shit. Still to this day. They were like, yeah. oh, I saw you play. I forget the venue. Sure. Um, or someone's like, my band played that show with you guys. And I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, it speaks to the resounding effect that uh, your band has had on people. Aaron grabbing uh. you. <laughs> just when all things are going bad. That was the move. Just going to the crowd. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's still a move that that a lot of us often use. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah. Um, when did, because I know if I'm looking, if I'm assuming correctly, uh, the split seven inch that you all did with Norma Jean yeah. uh, came out. I know it came out the same year as A to B Live. Yeah. Uh, how close together were that? Because I know it has a song from that record, but it's a different recording of it, I want to say. I don't know. I've never actually physically heard it. Okay. It might be like a pre-production version of That's uh, I want to say it might be. I want to say it might be. Um how did how did uh cuz that was also the first time you worked with Tooth and Nail. Like how did all of that kind of come together? Cuz it wasn't too far long after that EP. It seemed like maybe it was like a year and a half or something like that. No, it was like 3 months after we released oh, that wow, EP. We got signed by Tooth and Nail. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Aaron knew somebody. There was a guy who had a record label called Take Hold, and they were putting out like yep. the early under stuff, Further Seems Forever. And we kind of were like, hey, we got a band. We were playing uh, Cornerstone Festival. I'm sure you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't know anything about what this was until I was actually there. We're not booked on this festival. We just brought our stuff to play because Greg and Aaron and Mike's other band, the Operation, um, was actually playing like one of the small stages. So we were just playing on like the side of the road, basically. Dusty side of the road. Uh, video confirms this. There's actual video of it that exists. I'm happy about that. Um, happy and weird on it because it's embarrassing. We're awful. It was, we'll wear suits, we'll flip out. Basically, after the first performance, Take Hold was like, yo, we want to sign you. Then we were approached by Tooth and Nail people within a day or two, like, we're interested in signing you. And it's like, oh. The dude from Take Hold was like, hey, I might be merging with Tooth and Nail. Don't sign to me or you'll not have any kind of leverage in a contract. Not yeah. that there was anything nefarious about that, sure. but he was doing us a solid. And that yeah. was... After we played Furnace Fest, because like he offered us Furnace Fest a month later. It was like, oh, if you okay. can come down to Alabama, I mean, we're playing at noon to nobody. But yeah. it was like, oh, yo, we're playing with a lot of rad bands. Dillinger, I think Poison the Well, Hope Conspiracy. It yeah. was just like, oh, this is where we want to be. Yeah. End up signed to Tooth and Nail off the strength of whatever the hell that performance was. Um and one of the main things was like, yeah, this isn't like the greatest contract. We're probably not going to make money, but they can get you studio time with Jay Robbins at inner ear. 
And then yeah. it was like, say no more. I'm in. I'm all in. And my mom's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, this is what I want to do. This is yeah. absolutely what I want to do. How much of the record was written at that point? None. 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 Yeah. A to B life. Two, two of the songs we revamped from that original EP, but everything else was EP, like, yeah. yo, let's hit the books. And Mike Weiss had stuff that we jammed on, like almost Brit pop sounding, because me and him would play every Friday night regardless yeah. of me without you he was just he was a bass player and i hate you and um he wanted to play guitar and like the intro to bullet the binary he was trying to make it like london suede or something like that and we would jam on it i'm like i just this tempo it's not working and then like why don't we use it as this so it's interesting how some of those things morphed Translate over yeah, time. yeah yeah into morphed into that something yeah. totally different yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, I don't really remember too much from that time. Like, okay, that's fair. I mean, it's, it's no, no, almost 20 years. Yeah. Well, I, I more mean like, I remember staying at the Oakwoods for brother, sister. I had a lot of potent memories from that. We were thrown into like a holiday in, in Arlington, Virginia for 12 days. Yeah. I remember the studio very vividly, but all the external things that I've come to love about other experiences similar, I don't really have any recollection. Do you remember, I mean, do you remember having a good time doing that record with Jay Robbins? Like, was it stressful? Was it exciting? It was all things that I think he was going through a family tragedy, mm. uh, unbeknownst to us. He was very yeah. stoic, very serious, but that's what I expected. Um, with the limited knowledge I knew of him, like Jawbox and stuff like that, but records course, he, yeah. he was doing. And he like complimented me, said I was a good drummer and that's all I needed. You know, You're it was like, like oh, okay, oh. cool. Like, yeah. I appreciate that. But, you know, yeah. we got there and like, you're looking at like a Marshall half stack and on the back it's spray painted Fugazi. And you're just like, <laughs> that's like, you feel like you hit the golden ticket, you know, yeah. you're not even using the amp. You just see just that it was, to it. yeah, <laughs> you're in the same room as it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But it, it, that, that part of it was super surreal. And we, yeah. I felt like not worthy because I had a lot of reverence for that whole, I feel like the DC East coast scene is like super serious. You know, it's like the no fun zone. Um, so I felt like I was like in a museum, like by myself, don't touch anything. Right. Don't look anybody who comes in to talk to Donzi <laughs> in the eyes. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we recorded our second record out in Kansas with, uh, uh, this guy Ed Rose, because he did like the get up kids and the coalesce records, like out in Eudora, you know? Yeah. So, so, and in that studio, similar feeling where like we walk into the live room and like above the door is like the big mural that is the cover of On a Wire from, from the Get Up Kids. And, and like knowing that that's like the Pope's drum sets right there. And I'm just being like, well, this is crazy. This, this all hit me right now that this is where we are. Like that kind of a thing. Totally. Yeah. And like, maybe there's feelings of your life will change because of this or, but I feel like you, I appreciate history of music i appreciate all the people that i feel like music has been like one of my greatest teachers so that was just like going to like college like a like an independent small private college recording <laughs> yeah. at inner ear right. you know 
Yeah. Uh, how how did um I've I've always been curious how did uh Brad Wood come into the picture for for you all it, for I mean for us when we went with Brad it was like it was like well he did the Me Without You records that we love and he did then then like the obvious like we he did Sunny Day he did Far he did you know those records which are all like timeless records yeah um oh and shit he's in la he's like not far from where we are no brainer. So that's also wonderful yeah but you you guys had to travel from from the east coast out to out to la so like what what was it that same thing of like oh he did the sunny day records we love to work with this guy uh yeah it was something that was floated to us by uh chad johnson who was take hold records now working as a and r tooth and nail he was like, hey, I think this guy would be great. And we're like, you want us to come to L.A. for a month? Uh, what does that even look like? And yeah. as the Ducks lined up and we were on tour with Beloved and Norma Jean, I want to say. And we, oh, where did we play? Anyway, it was like, Brad wants to meet you for lunch. No, we were actually, sorry, cut back. We were on the Tooth and Nail tour which further seems forever was supposed to be the headliner. And they dropped off the day of first show. We're in Fort Lauderdale. It's like, how would you guys feel about closing some of the shows? You and Anne Berlin. It's like, I guess so. Whatever. Uh, Brad, we went out to lunch with them and we hit it off, you know, some bougie LA breakfast spot where it's like 22 bucks for eggs. Uh, <laughs> Welcome. I could get used to this, you know, like, <laughs> right. Um, but we had like, it seemed like one of like a, uh, like a kind of like a music movie kind of like we're at this brunch sunglasses on talking, you know, he's got the check yeah. or we got the check yeah. or the label got the check. Label got the check. But, uh, yeah. that's how we met Brad and <clears throat> sent him some demos and it was the sunny day was a huge huge thing because at the time that was probably as far as rock bands go aaron's bar none he loves sunny day probably still does i don't think he listens to them but he knows every drum fill and every word from the first two albums yeah i don't know where he stands on how it feels i feel like that's where some of the early fans kind of split with them yeah and it's a phenomenal album anybody that they put out a yeah, I don't think they put out a bad record. No, I, I love. I, oh, I, I could. I, yes. I, for me, I feel like they're just two different eras. Yes, of of incredible band. Like you put on Rising Tide, and you're like, I yes, these songs are incredible. Yeah, I have an old friend, <laughs> and she wanted me to get together. Like uh, we did, like a Weezer cover band and house party thing. She's like, could you do Sunny Day for my birthday? I was like, that's gonna be a tall order. Uh, it's way more technically sound and the singing, the vocals. I don't want to just throw somebody into that. And she's like, I only want diary and the pink album. And I'm like, flash forward to about two months ago, I'm at her birthday. And this was years ago. Yeah. Sunny day gets brought up and she didn't even want to hear about the rising tide. And I'm like, Whoa. there's so many good tracks on this record. Like, yeah. And I feel like, those two records are just super mature to me. Yeah. They just really honed in on what they were doing. And it was like, we're not going to be limited to this sound. The songwriting's great. Like, and I think I said to her, I was like, if you don't like the rising tide, you just don't like music. 
You just you just don't. There's a couple duds on it, but the songs that hit, they hit. Uh, hit hard. Yes, very extremely hard. The uh, and I I ride uh, back to Brad. I ride super hard for the Fire Theft record too, which yeah. was the band after. It's uh, so at, so we just played Furnace Fest. Obviously, I remember you, you me without you. Unfortunately, I had to drop it. I know, but um, so we played uh, between Mineral and Jeremy Enoch, uh. which for me, I'm just like. I, I don't understand how this world works anymore. This is crazy. Yeah. I was like out of my mind, <clears throat> but Jeremy Enoch before us, like back to back in his set did guitar and video games into heaven from the fire theft record. And I was like, those are my, just probably my two favorite songs that this man has written. Jams. Like, I, I was just out of, I was, it was, it was such a, such a special experience. And his solo um, record is there's unbelievable. It's, it's crazy that that's not like an American treasure right kind of record because it really is Maybe a special album i mean it's beloved um, by everybody who likes sunny day yeah but he just yeah, he's talented talented man um extremely so obviously jeremy nick sang on brother sister uh i imagine that was like a a brad yo you want to come in or whatever did he do did he come to the studio or, or did he record those uh remotely he recorded those remotely and yeah, I don't know. That was mind blowing. Brad's like, well, let me, let me see. Yeah. And he made it happen. But actually I saw the fire theft with Brad at the Troubadour while we were recording catch with the foxes. And he's like dragging me around. And these are all his old friends. And yeah, they stopped by one day and it was the one day I wasn't there. And William Goldsmith, he played him. I think he played him tie me up on tie me. Yeah. But at that point, like Aaron's vocals just weren't there. It took a while in that process. Like the words were there, but it was like, yo, you need to deliver from your stomach. Don't hold back. So yeah. when I'm like, oh, he was there, but he heard the pre-production kind of demos. Um, and that was like a highlight knowing William Goldsmith heard it, heard yeah. a track. Yeah. So. That's what um, like this kind of stuff means to me, you know, just yeah. knowing that. And he probably has no recollection of this, you know. I remember when we were recording with Brad, he, he told one of my favorite anecdotes he told me about recording uh, your records was one about um, Aaron recording uh, the song in the like actually outside in the rain. Yeah. Like like that's the sound of the rain is like very genuine. He recorded that outside. Uh, while it was raining like that's super cool but also when you finish also when you finished your drums on one of the records you walked to the gelson's and got like a whole chicken and just brought it back and celebrated by just eating a rotisserie chicken which i think is so fucking sick yeah that that's funny he texted me a few months ago he's like do you remember that gelson's chicken and it was like i got pulled back into a time warp i remember the gelson's chicken very well for two reasons our then like videographer friend tour manager he eventually managed us for a little while he worked at a lot of venues in philadelphia as a runner or a production so he would have a lot of contacts in his rolodex and he saved their name i'm eating the gelson's chicken he gets a call from um dude what I, why can't i think of his name i'm drawing a blank cuz the story's so ridiculous paul banks from Interpol. Oh, Interpol. Yeah. And I'm eating the chicken and his face, he just turns it 
and I'm like, yo, this is it. We're going to get an Interpol tour. Like, this is insane. Why else would Paul Banks call him? He called the wrong Josh, had him saved in his phone. <laughs> That's what was going on while I'm eating the Gelson's chicken. So it, that, that chicken shit. meant a lot to me. I don't really eat meat like that anymore, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a celebratory thing in 2004, whatever it was. Yeah, a lot of clowny moments where you're like, this is it. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Kind of get the egg on the face. Yeah. Uh, Not to be too uh, blowing smoke up your butt, but for for me and for a lot of us, like knowing that we are recording, especially because we did two records with Brad as well, like that first one recording there just being like, man this is the same space to me with how you did those records. It means so much to us. So, so yeah, we're like your a, one King down flyer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I, you obviously you did the, those first four records, um, on tooth and nail. And then when you did 10 stories, that was self-released. And I actually just was just curious for you, um, how that went. And like, was it, if you had any advice for like self-releasing a record like that far into your career, like what did you take away from that? After it's all crazy. I thought it's our, it's all crazy was it. And every record we've recorded since then, I thought that's it. Our contract was fulfilled with tooth and nail. We had an offer to re up, but we're like, you know, doing some like stupid, it was a great move, but like our logic was a little flawed. Like if 10% of our Facebook followers buy it, then it'll equate to this on two things. Just like weird yeah, logic that probably never pans out the way you think it's going to. Um, right. But we did that record and I don't, I wasn't like super big on the releasing it aspect. Mm-hmm. Like our now manager, Mike Omquist had like a vision for a box set before the music was even written. Once we got like some of the themes for the record from Aaron, cause that was the first record. Aaron was like, this is what I'm writing about. This is what I'm thinking about writing about like the circus train crash. And we were backstage, I think at Irvin Plaza and he's telling me this and I'm like, circus train crash. Like what about your emotional pain? from like being inflicted by a, a female, like what are you talking about? So I just, we just kind of trusted them. It was yeah. a pretty big, well, the record before was a super departure. Right. Thematically. And it was like literature almost. And I think that's yeah. just where his mind was. And like 10 stories could be like a stage play. There's like actors totally. and all that. So I appreciate what he did there. It took yeah. a lot of trust and self-releasing is kind of hard. Honestly, you do have to get like a distro deal with somebody to, that's going to put the record on shelves. That doesn't yeah. magic, magically happen. I mean, now it's changed. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that was the tour that, I mean, in 2012, that's a tour that we got to know each other. We toured together. Yeah. Uh, was that 13? Oh, no, sorry. 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 That was 2014, but that yeah. was, uh, for I think you were still touring off of that record, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there wasn't um, even a, a hint of Pale Horses yet. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so 
I, I mean, I, 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 from, from an outside perspective, I felt like you, you all did great. I have that box that you're talking about. Like I remember pre-ordering that yeah. and, um, that there, I feel like that era, there was a lot of bands of, uh, of, of your size or maybe a little bigger, a little smaller that were doing that. I remember Circus Arrive also self-released a record around that same time. Um, and it always stuck with me being like, you know, something that we've tossed around being like, oh, are we at the point where we think that we can do this? Um, so, yeah, it's just it's something that I always find fascinating. And I always like to ask friends, like if they have any takeaways from that experience or any advice they would give. And, and sometimes I've talked to people who are like, don't do it. Yeah. But, I've, <laughs> you know, here's the thing. You need to have people in your organization that have drive. So if you have somebody who's willing to take on like, hey, we need to get art. We need to get a publicist. We need to do this. Like, uh, Omquist wasn't really a manager. He was like an idea man when he yeah. came into our organization. And he believed he could execute. So we were like, all right, you got the ball. Like, we shared a manager, not at the same time, Blaze. We were like yeah. lost after us and Blaze parted ways. Yeah. Like our friend Josh, who I mentioned earlier, he kind of picked up the emails and then picked up talking to the booking agent and was the interim to where we're at now. But I feel like the self-release thing, it's really gratifying when it works, you know? But we got the idea, I think, from Thrice. They had released that uh, their ele right. the Elements EP project. Right. And I remember being like, so wait, there's no label? Because we did a tour with them and Brand New. And Brand New eventually would do Favorite Gentlemen and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And they spoke highly of the process. It was financially. It was probably a way they could sustain their career while feeding their families. You know, I feel like a lot of people, they just hear the music and see the people. But behind all of us, there's people back home that yeah like we have to consider financial things yeah for our wives and our husbands and our children and all that so it's not like i hate bringing up money when talking about especially our band like but it is a necessary component that keeps it going and i think had we not self-released 10 10 stories i don't know if we'd be a band it just sure. might not have been possible no, it, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I kind of do hate. I mean, I, I understand the 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 um the irk that or, or like the the knee jerk feeling that you get sometimes when uh, that you can get sometimes when you're talking about money when you come from punk kind of a thing. But yeah. like it is a thing that it is a thing that um, unfortunately makes the world turn and becomes a necessity, especially when you get older because you have rent and you have bills and you have all those sorts of things. So yeah, no, you're allowed, you're allowed to be concerned with that. I think. Yeah. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head with the, I remember people calling green day sellouts because they did something and it's like, yeah, they signed a huge contract, like good for those guys. But yeah. those stories <laughs> stuck with me for years from when I was 12 or 13 of people just, calling them sellouts and stuff. So like right. money, it's just, the, yeah, the, I've, I've, I've made this uh, comment on the show once or twice, but like, uh, I always joke that the arc 
of a punk, a band that comes from punk can be seen through the price of their t-shirts. Yes. Which is, you know, when you, when you start, you're selling your shirts for eight to 10 bucks and then you move to 12 and then you go, fuck, I hate dealing with ones. So then eventually you, you're selling them for 15 and then you get to the point where you could sell them for 20. And, but the funniest thing throughout this maybe 10 year, 15 year arc is that at no point did the person that the consumer care. The, whole, the consumer the entire time has just wanted to support you. Yeah. So it's all in the band's it's all in the band's head. Well, to Aaron, Aaron's always wanted our merch to be free, which is like a cool concept or pay yeah. what you want. But it's like, yo, there's seven colors on that American apparel t-shirt. Like yeah. it's a high quality item that costs money to produce. And in order to deliver like a quality service or quality goods it requires sometimes you stopped at 20 a 25 dollar t-shirt and it's like yeah yeah but aaron's always been like we shouldn't have merch we shouldn't do this i mean he's relinquished it and sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek but yeah in his perfect world we're not charging for shows for of course merch i think on one tour we did he went to a bunch of thrift stores, had a box of these ratty shirts that he had a single screen press, Me Without You and Black Ink. It was a $5 t-shirt and you could just root through it. I wonder if anybody still has it, but those were... Oh, I'm sure they're out there. Those were, I'm sure they're out there. It would be on like a Hanes, the craziest size Hanes. It, <laughs> it's insane. But uh, he would set it up next to our merch booth, playing like yeah. the Will Turn. With like brand new and thrice, <laughs> but I love Bless it. Him. That's so. I good. love it. I love it. Um, well, shit, man. I, let me hit you with the with the last question I like to ask everybody, sure. which is, uh, when do you think the first time you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards was? Yeah, you kind of prepped me on this um, last night. The preliminary that kind of kicks off this is when we linked up with Blaze. Yeah. Um. Because he had done at the drive-in and Murder City Devils. Blaze is a manager. Great guy. Um, we went out to Chinatown the night the Eagles won a playoffs game. I didn't really know what was going on. I was wearing an Eagles jersey. Had the black under my eyes. But Nick Storch and Justin Bridgewater were two booking agents. Huge at the time. Nick Storch. He was like a revered hardcore booking agent. Blaze and them agreed to take us on all at one table. And that was like, holy, like this, yeah. things are coming together. They liked catch. Fast forward to more specifically when we got that Coheed tour with the Blood Brothers and Dredge. Because <clears throat> prior to that, if we played to more than like 100 people, it was a huge win. You know, Sometimes there'd be a couple hundred kids at a show, sometimes not. But that was like, yo, there's going to be like 1,500 people every night in theaters. And yeah, just getting the tour with cohorts that I'd like. The Blood Brothers, like especially in that era, the Crimes era, that's some of my favorite music that was produced in like the, I guess, hardcore underground yeah. scene. 
Sure. So to be able to play 32 shows with them and Coheed and Dredge and all these established acts, that was kind of the, all right, this is, we can do this and people seem to enjoy it. And it just felt like yeah. a big step up into like a different, different league, I guess. God, something I hadn't thought about in a minute was the first, I remember the first time I saw you was at the Troubadour and Jonah from Far came up and did the Barry White. You guys did the Barry White cover yeah. together. And that was like the mix of, wow, one of my new favorite bands is covering a song from one of my all-time favorite bands. And it was just like such a special moment. And I'll never forget that. that. Was, I, I, I mean, I... Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then, I, you know, I can. I think I, unless I was out of town, like I, I think I managed to see you every time you guys would come through. Yeah. That was Jonah's birthday, and he had no idea. We were like, all right, we'll just play it. Maybe he'll just be lured up, and sure enough, he was. And I think him and Aaron grabbing, Aaron chipped Jonah's front teeth with the the mic, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah. Uh, Because we were on tour with One Line Drawing and this other band, The Start. Do you remember them? Yes. Yes, I do. Amy Echo. Amy Echo. Um was she in Sarge? Um, no. It was a very odd bill. Yeah. It was an odd bill. I think a couple booking agencies were like, we don't know what to do with these people. Yeah. Send them out together. Sure, why not? But, you know, far just being like learning Barry White in like a day or two. It's like it was super yeah. fun, super awesome. I uh, remember it was, that. It was yeah, it was very exciting. It was very, very exciting. Well, being at the Troubadour, uh, that's like, yeah. especially being an East Coast kid, like, that was an early, yo, we're playing the Troubadour. It's insane. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, man, Ricky, I love you so yeah. much. And this Sorry is, this I is, talked this about this... me so much. I. You said you talked about you so much? I feel so like much? I should have been I'm, asking you guest. more questions. Shut up. No, this is, this is, uh, this, your spotlight's on you, you handsome devil. Can I ask you one thing? Yeah. Do you have, uh, you'd prefer an astronaut on vinyl? Yeah. Oh, I hate you. Not an original press, I don't though. care. I don't care. Yeah. I, it doesn't have to I be do. original. That's my, like, they just, I'm always, I know they're re-releasing them. Yeah. Polyvinyl just did the Downward is Heavenward. I grabbed or it. You can, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh. One of just yeah, one of the best bands. I always think about you. Like I bet you, he has that record. Do you have multiple copies? If you do, I just have the one. If I had multiple, I would give you. No, that's not what I'm asking. Uh, Above, I don't know if this will work. Let's see. Above my desk here. uh, So we got to do two shows with them. Oh yeah, I I was insanely jealous. I have like the framed posters. Oh hell yeah! From those shows. Yeah, that was like uh, I. There's been a few moments for us where we got tours or got to do shows with bands that that changed everything for us, which I'll never, you know, I, that was that was a circumstance of that. Uh, you all agreeing to do that whole U.S. tour with us was definitely one of those things. Like, I, I, you know, there's those moments that are. Well, the Hum tour, I remember being on social, the Hum shows, being on social yeah. media. And I'd like winced when I saw it. I was like, I, I was ha- very happy for you, but I, it like didn't. <laughs> compute i'm like one hum still playing shows and they're playing shows with touche 
Yeah, like, and it was like a co-headline. I was like, yeah. this doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, those shows were in way too bigger rooms for either of our bands. We realized that the, uh, afterwards, but I mean, for us, it was still just fucking insane. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, all right, Ricky, I love you. Yeah, we're done. Oh, yeah. And that's our show. Thank you so much to Ricky for coming on. And thank you for listening. Reminder, hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where you can hear a bonus episode right now where Ricky answered questions from subscribers. Take care of yourself. Have a good rest of your week. And uh, if you got an extra second, rate and review the show over on iTunes. It helps a whole lot. Bye bye.